We respectfully acknowledge the University of Arizona is on the land and territories of indigenous peoples. Today, Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Autumn and Yaqui. Committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. kind of said imagine money and expense and time and can no, you have no constraints what would you make this place look like and it's kind of embarrassing to say but we pretty much got everything that we were looking for well hello there and thank you for joining us for episode 65 today we speak with dr christopher hannifin who is the program director at the seton hall university pa program dr hannifin began his medical career as an ems volunteer And then he went on to change his undergraduate career major from political science to pre-medicine. After working for a year in hospital administration, he enrolled in the Seton Hall UMDNJ PA program, went on to practice in cardiothoracic surgery and emergency medicine, and now has been in education for 20 years. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Hannafin. And as always, you can learn more about our guests at our website, papathpodcast.com. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to learn about Seton Hall University and about you and your path to becoming a PA. Let's start there. I see you were a cardiothoracic surgery PA in South Bend, Indiana. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued by that experience for you. So how, how did you get to that point? When did you decide to become a PA and what led you to South Bend? Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It's cool stuff to talk about. So like a lot of, it seems, as PAs, I took kind of a circuitous path. It seems like either students know right what they want to do out of high school or kind of, I was listening to some of your other podcasts, how people wind themselves into the PA profession. So when I went away to undergrad, I was dead set 100% sure I was going to be going to law school. And I started out as a poli, we didn't have poli-sci, I was a government major, but basically it was poli-sci. And I had been, prior to college, uh, part of a kind of a ruralish volunteer fire department. And uh, with the modern fire codes being what they were, not a lot of stuff around us was burning down. Most of what we would wind up doing would be attending to car accidents out on the big interstate that ran through town. And it really just kind of got me curious, you know, an ambulance would pull up and we'd load the patient in and they would disappear. And you kind of wonder what would happen to them after that point. So I went away to college and they were offering an EMT course on campus, uh, just a non-credit kind of extracurricular thing. So I jumped into that and started doing a lot of first aid on campus for football games and things like that. Really, really had a blast. And I started thinking about what a medical career might look like between the summer between freshman and sophomore year. And I guess it was probably midway through sophomore year, I made kind of the disastrous decision to switch from being a government major into being, or being a government major and switch over into a pre-medical major. And that put me in kind of a bad position in terms of like course sequencing. You know, you're supposed to take Kent Bio your freshman year or Chem and Bio and Organic. And I wound up having all these classes, any of which one of which would have been sufficient to kind of flunk me out of school on its own. I wound up taking them all at the same time. So I was taking like physics and organic chemistry at the same time. And I, I did okay. 
but I wasn't doing great. And as graduation started to approach, the guy who was the pre-medical advisor said, you know, your numbers are very middle of the road. You're not going to impress anybody with this. You haven't taken a ton of science electives because I'd burned a lot of electives in my old major. He said, you know, you're probably going to have to go out and get some kind of graduate degree in science just to prove you can take a heavy science course load, you know, if you want to apply to medical school. And he was trying to talk me into like going into a molecular biology graduate program. And the thing I Uh kept thinking to myself was whatever becomes of my life, I know with 100 percent certainty, I don't want to be a molecular biologist. I want to do something with with hands on medicine. And it was funny, freshman year, being a government major, I just remember I was taking kind of these goofy science classes for non-science majors. And I remember taking the last one and being like, that's the last science class I'm ever going to have to take in my life. It's all behind me and I'm done. So I made the big switch and I graduated and a pre-medical degree without a post-medical something I found was kind of a pain in the neck to try and manage. And I was working at a local hospital here in one of the administrative units. They have kind of a patient satisfaction unit, which is anytime a patient is unhappy about something, you're the person that's supposed to go and try and smooth it over. And it was absolutely a miserable job, but it taught me how to kind of communicate fairly well with people and deal with off-the-wall situations. And I was kind of the night guy, so there were no support services in the hospital. I used to do weekend overnights and things like that, and people would say, I want to see the hospital president here. And I was trying to explain, you know, hospital presidents tend not to hang around the hospital at like 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. And as I was working there, most of my work was in the emergency department. And the unit clerk had just enrolled in Seton Hall's PA program, which was brand new, I guess not being, you know, still kind of going through the accreditation process. They weren't really advertising very much. And the ER had a bunch of PAs working there. And I kind of walked in like, who are these people? This was in the 90s. And for folks who aren't aware, New Jersey was actually the second to last state to license PAs. We We were very late to the game. So nobody knew what PAs were, what they were doing, except some of the big healthcare systems that started hiring them for stuff like emergency and assisting in surgery. So I started talking to the guy and really got a feel for what the PA profession entailed. And I wound up applying to the Seton Hall program that he was in, and I entered the cohort the following year. So I was in their second class. They were a new program. They were still in provisional accreditation. And yeah, the rest the rest is kind of history. It was a wild ride being part of a provisionally accredited program. There was a lot of stuff still kind of being figured out and course sequencing and what's the best way of doing things. I don't think I would discourage a student from doing that. I thought it was exciting to be on the ground floor of a program. I thought it was, I think it's exciting to be on the ground floor of our profession. Honestly, we're what, 54 years old this fall, something like that. And I think it's, it's exciting to get in and build and see what something can become. So we had a good time in the program. At the time, it was a joint program between Seton Hall and what was then the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. So someone had the brilliant idea we should have some of our classes in the morning on Seton Hall's campus, and then we should have afternoon classes in Newark uh, down the road, trying to go through like lunch rush hour traffic, get back and forth between campuses. Uh, The area we had most of our clinicals were in was around North New Jersey, which is, it's getting better, but back then it was a very significantly socioeconomically depressed area. A lot of problems with drugs. There was a big HIV population. There was a big TB population. So it was, uh, you know, it was a good patient population to, to work with. There were people that had pretty significant pathology. So I had a blast in PA school. I know if you read these fora online, they're like, PA school, it's, oh, you, no one ever gets into PA school. People write these posts and it's like, I had a 4.0 and I cured cancer and I worked with Mother Teresa and why can't I get into PA school? And I keep looking at these things like, there must be something profoundly wrong with you. But 
I thought PA school was a blast. It was the most fun I ever had in school. I worked harder than I ever, ever had in any other program. But, you know, I think the material was just so interesting. It was stuff I could see myself using every day. In undergrad, I was taking classes, some of which I knew, you know, calculus was not going to come back and haunt me again in my life. And I knew I was never going to be an organic chemist, but it probably makes me a little bit nerdy, but I can still sit down and read a physio book or look at like physio videos on YouTube and say, this is interesting stuff. I really like hearing about this. So, you know, the thing I say to people interested in PA school is it's going to be very much your own individual experience. Don't let somebody talk you into thinking it's going to be a nightmare and it's going to be really hard. You know, if you have good prep going into school and you're really interested in the material, you know, you might go through PA school and just wait for it to be crushingly difficult. and You might never get there. So I had a blast in school. I made some of the best friends I'll ever have in my life. The other thing I think thing I think is different about PA school is the folks folks you're working with are going to be your colleagues. And a lot of my classmates kind of wound up still in the tri-state area and we run into each other and maybe even refer patients back and forth here and there across paths in the hospital. So that was really a cool thing. So then how did you get into cardiothoracic surgery? Yes, yeah, so as graduation was approaching, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. And I had been an EMS volunteer for quite a while. And I always kind of had a sense I knew I would wind up working in the emergency department. But it was kind of a friend of a friend deal out by Chicago, like you said, in South Bend, Indiana. There was a guy working for an open heart surgery group. His wife had just had twins. And she told him, you're not going to keep working these hours you're working. You're going to come home and help out a little bit more. So the job kind of opened up out of the blue. And I was trying to talk to my classmates about, what do you what do you think of this? And they were like, you're young, you have no responsibilities, you have no family, you have no home, you have no furniture, you have basically a car and kind of the clothes on your back. So, you know, it didn't seem like a big deal to drive out there and, and try something a little bit different. Again, knowing I wasn't going to, it probably wasn't going to be my life's calling, I wasn't going to do for the rest of my life. So I went out and worked for a, a group of uh, open heart surgery group. It was a group of five surgeons, and they worked out of three different hospitals. And they had a lot of PA turnover. They used to work as like rented mules. You know, we'd probably have about 50-ish patients on service across the three hospitals, maybe 50 or 60, depending on what was going on between heart surgeries and lung surgeries. And statistically speaking, about 30% of open heart patients will have a dysrhythmia. They go into AFib in the middle of the night after open heart surgery. And the group I was with, the PAs kind of took all the first call. So if anything went wrong with a patient, the answering service would wind up calling the PA. And you'd be up all night with a uh, person's in AFIT back then. We used to give everybody digital like it was M&Ms. I, that's probably not in fashion anymore. It comes and goes out of fashion. but And we didn't have a post-call day. So we would just be up and be expected to have kind of a normal. There were four PAs, so we were on call every fourth night. And I usually had to get in the hospital. I'm not a morning person. Even the rest of the day, my co-workers will tell you it's not very good, but I'm definitely not a morning person. I had to be in the hospital usually to start rounds, usually about like 4.45 to get through everybody to be ready to start an open heart case, usually around 7.15, 7.30-ish. And we would do like two cases, typically before lunch. And then over lunch-ish, we would have all the patients who had previously been discharged or be coming back to the office to have sutures out and their checkup and two-week checkup and a two-month checkup to be discharged from practice and things like that. I got in the habit of eating my lunch while I was online in the cafeteria because I didn't have time otherwise. So I would get to the empty tray down to the end of the line and be like, to the lunch lady, here's what I ate. This used to be a hamburger. That was a ring dings. That was a chocolate milkshake. And hustle up to the office, see those patients. And then generally there would be a there would be a, maybe even one or two cases in the afternoon, and then we would spend the evening kind of doing discharge summaries and all the usual stuff. And Wow, those are brutal hours. 
on a good day, I'd probably get back to my place maybe like 6 p.m. And there were days I was so tired, I would just like go inside this, the door and like fall asleep on the carpet in my scrubs. And I used to wake up in the morning and be so tired if we were up all night. I, I tell our students there was one day I was in the locker room and I couldn't get my pants off and figure out what was going on. And I had actually somehow forced two belts on. I put a belt on, then I put another belt on on top of it. So that this sounds pretty consistent, right? With uh, what we know is CT surgery. That's kind of classic. Yeah, that was that was life for about two years, and I enjoyed it. I really missed. There's a lot of camaraderie in the operating room. I started to get back problems. What one of the surgeons told me was, make sure you don't kind of hunch over. You're going to get lower back problems. So in lieu of doing that, I kind of stood up straight and stuck my chin against my sternum. And I started to get really bad neck problems. Mm -hmm. And what scared me was one of the surgeons was a youngish guy. He wound up needing a cervical fusion because he was starting to get a radiculopathy. He was like getting paresthesias shooting down both arms. And I said, this, this is not me. Uh, this is not what I'm going to wind up doing the rest of my life. And the other thing I tell our students is, you know, when you're kind of picking out your specialty, you have to find one that suits your mental pathology. So if you <laughs> want to do something like open heart surgery, that's good for people that are kind of OCD and you want to do the same thing the same way every time, a million times, perfect it, do it better than anybody on earth, every single stitch you put in and every vein you pull. So if you have that kind of personality, you'll go and open heart surgery and thrive there. And there's folks that were in the group 10 years before I got there that are still working with them now. My pathology is more kind of ADHD which is that's kind of ideal for working in emergency medicine because you don't know what's coming and it's different. It's young people, old people, medical problems, surgical problems, social problems, a little bit of everything. So it kind of suited me a little bit better when I was going to leave the open heart job. You know, I put my notice in and one of the surgeons stopped me and said, well, what would we have to do to talk you into staying? And I said, well, you know, I'm working pretty much 12 hours a day here, either five or seven days a week. When I go and work in the emergency department, they're paying me a little bit more than you guys are paying me. And I'm going to have 100 more days off a year because we're only working 312s there. And he said, yeah, we'll have a hard time matching 100 days off a year. Best of luck. So um, I went and settled into the emergency department. And again, it was odd being in the ER in a hospital. This is right around 2000-ish because PAs, again, were still new to New Jersey. The first PA in the hospital was actually a guy I graduated with. He was in the emergency department, and I joined him in the ER, and we were covering 12-hour shifts during the day. They just had one, one PA, one 12-hour slot of PA coverage each day, primarily really just working in the fast track. Yeah, students sometimes ask if what's it like to switch between specialties. It can be a little bit tricky. I wasn't far enough out of school that I forgot how to take care of a lot of stuff, but some of the, I was probably one of the best suturers in the emergency department among anybody from having come out of surgery, but figuring out how to put orthoglass splints on and stuff like that. Uh, what you'll find is the stuff you pick up in school. It's a little bit like riding a bicycle. It tends to come back pretty quickly. And just kind of settled in there. And I watched as New Jersey, as the PA concept got to be more and more popular. There was a lot of pushback. The emergency department chair in the unit was very pro-PA and in favor of hiring PAs. And some of the docs were just, one of them introduced himself to me. And he's like, just, I just want you to know, just so it's out there 100% up front. I really don't like PAs. I don't think we need you guys. I don't think you're going to get anything to the emergency department. I was like, okay, thanks. I had a situation with him once where someone came in to have sutures removed. It was, some, it was kind of a trivial, I think, like forearm injury. They put it through a glass table and needed like three stitches. And this guy would not let me discharge a patient without him seeing one. So I wrote up all the, I wrote up all the discharge instructions. I pulled the three stitches out. He was ready to go. I had the guy come over and he pitched a fit like, how 
how dare you remove sutures from a wound before I have the chance to inspect it? I was like, bro, I just worked in open heart surgery. I put in more stitches than you'll ever see in your entire life in a week. But it was, you know, it was a rough environment. It was rough and tumble for PAs in the early days on. Now, yeah, Bill was- Cole have talked about that a little bit with us uh, when he was on, you know, kind of that early mentality. In New Jersey was a little yeah. different than like Massachusetts and Connecticut. It took a, it took a bit of a fight to get things normalized. Yeah, he went through the Rutgers program and for their first, you know, one of the best programs in the country. And for their first, I don't know how many years, all their graduates either had to go work for the VA or they had to leave the state because we were so late to the game. And yeah, it was a shame. It's New Jersey's very bureaucratic in a lot of things, whether you're an architect or an accountant or a nurse or a PA or whatever, they like their paperwork and their fees and their craziness. But what I'm finding now is the board of medical examiners, a lot of kind of the dinosaurs are starting to retire off of that. And a lot of the younger crowds coming in are are docs who either worked with PAs and when they were medical students, they were with PA students and PAs or during their residency program. And they're really finding that we could be an asset to their practice. So I think the environment's getting to be a little bit more friendly in regard to that. So I did that full-time for a few years. And as I was working, it was actually affiliated with Seton Hall PA program. We were one of their clinical sites. So a lot of students would come through and I started just acting as a preceptor. Had a blast with that. I would recommend it to anybody who's working clinically. It keeps you sharp. It keeps you on your toes. You know, you you stand up a little straighter and you think twice and your sutures are a little bit straighter when you have a student watching you, someone who's going to be new to the profession. Uh, so I really enjoyed that. And the students were kind of like, hey, you should come and give a lecture on a topic every once in a while. So I got into a little bit of guest lecturing. I'd always kind of enjoyed teaching. I was a CPR instructor and a first aid instructor and a chemistry TA in undergrad. So I liked working with folks. There's nothing I think more rewarding than seeing when the light bulb clicks on for somebody, finally, as a faculty member. So yeah, I started full-time at Seton Hall. I think it was August of, it was either 03 or 04. And uh, yeah, so it's going on 20 years of teaching and it's been it's been an absolute blast. We just graduated a cohort of students last week and think of the things these folks are going to go out. Most of them are young crowds, so they're going to go out. They have a 40-year career ahead of them. They're going to go out and do fantastic things, and that cohort will provide millions of patient encounters, and we know they're going to do a great job. So, so I w- I'd like to circle back around to something that you mentioned before. You know, you said when you went to the to your program, it was kind of a developing program, and you know, with respect to provisional accreditation, I think that's something that prospective PA students uh, might know a little bit about, but but I think maybe. To, to think about how they consider, you know, if they're looking at a, a provisionally accredited program or a developing program, you know, you went to a program that was developing at the time. I'm kind of on the tail end of provisional accreditation. You know, it's, yep. a, it's a pretty high level of scrutiny. It's three accreditation visits in a period of five years when a program is developing. And Kevin's just kind of on the front end of that at the University of Arizona. So I think we've all got some experience either, you know, having gone to a program that was in its development you know, I think that students should understand that provisional accreditation, it's a really important thing that the accreditation agency does is is keep a program under a fairly close level of scrutiny while it's Absolutely. developing. And I think that, you know, prospective students should understand that that's actually for their protection. And it's it, it's probably the period of time when any program is, is watched as closely as it ever is, um, just to make sure that it's up to snuff and, and meeting all the standards and doing what it says it's going to do and hitting a level of of excellence that's expected in the PA profession. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was, I kind of had the same line of reasoning. I thought it was a non-risk to attend a provisionally 
accredited program because they were under a lot of scrutiny and, and the institutions, they really have to do a lot of self-study. No, no one's going to want a, a program to kind of start and then crash. It would be such an embarrassment and put them in such an odd situation. So I was pretty comfortable that they, they had all their ducks in a row and make sure the program was going to launch and, and run properly. And based on speaking to students who were already in the program, I always tell students, you know, if we can get put in touch with somebody, talk to some of the other students in the program and see what their experience is. And they, it sounded like things were very well organized and the curriculum was very well structured. So I, I didn't have much hesitation. Yeah, I think students who are considering, you know, what programs might be a good fit for them, if it's a provisionally accredited program, I don't think that's something that should necessarily put a student off. Yep. Um, in fact, it may become more attractive just because you know that that program is going to be watched pretty closely by the accreditation agency. And, you know, you know that it's going to be resourced, you know that it's going to be meeting the, the standards very closely because it's being it's being evaluated on a frequent basis for those first few years. You know, I think other things you want to look at with a provisionally accredited program is um, the leadership and the faculty that are in place at a provisionally accredited program. You want to make sure that the people that are in charge of building and developing that program are people that are coming in with some experience. Um, you know, from other institutions or, you know, have a history of, if not developing program, at least being in PA education, because you definitely want that program to be led by somebody who's got some experience in that area. Yeah, and a while back, I think pretty much anybody could be a PA program director. Now the ARCPA is demanding that folks have to have some level of experience before they come in. So it's, yeah, uh, and yeah, rightfully my, my so. My process was the same as yours. Yeah, rightfully so. E even with experience, it's still it's still a, an interesting challenge. And Steph, I like the way you, you put that because sometimes when you have ten year, a 10-year window before your next accreditation visit, while you are obviously collecting data and doing your self-study, it's easy to uh, become complacent. But I think with the provisional process, you're, you, have, you don't have that luxury. You have to stay on top of things. So, Absolutely. Uh, uh, Chris, I was in a new program as well. I was in the third or second or third class, I think the third class. And I think one of the benefits of being a new student in those programs, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you, you get a chance to really shape it. And it sounds like you quickly got back into being involved in your alma mater which is what I did as well. And I think there's there's a lot of value in that to try to help your program become more established. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's that was the sense we all had. You know, you you're a guinea pig on on one hand, but you know, you can the, when I was through the going through the program, they really took a lot of feedback from the students. Our class was a little bit older, kind of looked more like a typical PA class from the olden days. I was one of the younger guys in class being a year or so out of college. The average age in my class was probably mid-30ish. It was a lot of second career people. They were more mature folks and the, the program really valued their input on what they thought was going well, what didn't go well, and they they took the feedback without, you know, it's it's Tell, tell us the good, the bad, and the ugly so we can build a better program together. One of the things that you mentioned when you were talking about the specialties that you worked in was, you know, finding the, the specialty that's the right fit for you. And, and I think that's a unique opportunity that clinical rotations provide to students is the opportunity to kind of take a tour through medicine. Sure. And, you know, I think that you find out a lot about yourself, about your preferences, about your interests, as well as the way that you like to work and your personality and what, what you're a good fit for. And I think you touched on that. And, you know, maybe you can comment on that a little bit and your experience with students and, and kind of helping them find the right specialty for them to work in. Yeah, rotations were kind of funny in that I really liked all of them. I mean, I could have seen myself working in others more than some of them, but I really kind of had a blast on all of them. I thought they were all very, very interesting. So, 
we do have a lot of students, they come and approach graduation and they'll be like, what do you think I should work in? I'm like, well, what do you think you should work in? Like, well, I liked internal medicine, but I liked surgery and I liked OB-GYN and I like pediatrics. I said, boy, you're going to have some narrowing to do there before you figure things out. But I think, you know, you really, again, just have to kind of find what's a good fit for your personality, you know, in terms of intensity hours, there's people that like the trauma and the noise. And the you know, thing I would caution folks, they, they watch emergency medicine programs on TV, like ER and things like that. Oh, how exciting it is to work in the emergency room. Probably 90% of what you do is it's primary care for folks that can't find or don't have a primary care physician. So it's, it's kind of poorly delivered primary care with people that you don't have a relationship with. You think you're going to go into this big, exciting field. It was the same thing when I was an EMS volunteer. You think you're going to be doing all this exciting stuff and 90% of what you do is find febrile patients in nursing homes to truck them into the emergency department. So, you know, really the, the thing I tell my students is make sure you lay hands on as many patients as you possibly can. Spend a lot of time in the clinical environment. Our, our highest priority is to get you as many hours in the hospital as we can on each rotation. We used to, years ago, we used to do a callback day every week, which got to be kind of a pain in the neck with the New Jersey traffic. If we wanted everybody back on campus for classes at 5 p.m., some people would probably have to leave at noon, realistically, to have a chance of getting there. And so we moved all of our callback days to just kind of once every four weeks. We said, we want you to be in the hospital as many hours as they'll put up with you being there. You know, find out what the good and the bad and the ugly of each specialty is. And I even encourage them to talk to the docs in like a primary care setting. You know, you'll go home when they're done seeing patients at 5 p.m. You know, make sure you understand what they're doing after that in that office. Are they staying there fighting with insurance companies and paperwork and phone calls for another 30 minutes, another four hours? You know, nobody goes into medicine because they want to fill out EMRs and, and battle insurance companies, but that's going to be a significant part of your workload after you graduate. The emergency room I love because... You know, we don't we don't care who you are. Your mother can hate you and we're going to do the best we can by I don't care if you have insurance. I don't care if you're not in the country legally. I don't care if you're a prisoner or you're a terrible person. You know, if we can patch you up or make you feel better, we'll do whatever we can. And obviously, you know, those are very difficult, different concerns than a solo practitioner in an office has to buy pencils and buy light bulbs and hire and fire secretaries. And that's the person's sole livelihood. They have very different concerns than you do in the emergency department. So I really try and encourage students to make sure they see all the ancillary things, the unglamorous things that are associated with a medical career. And I even talk to people who are interested in the PA profession, you know, make sure you shadow a lot of folks, as many as you can get in with. Shadow PAs, shadow docs, and anytime you're talking to somebody, you know, if you're asking what they like about the profession, make sure absolutely you're asking what are the worst things about this profession? What do you do not like about it? So you have a full sense of what you're getting yourself into. Let's start talking about Seton Hall. What would be your typical pitch, Chris, that you're going to give to a group of applicants about your school, why they should think about it, and, and how they best prepare to be competitive applicants? Sure. So um, we're a little bit longer program than most. So stats will tell you usually programs around 27 months. We're 33 months, basically three academic years. So our curriculum is kind of structured. People say it looks kind of like an old-fashioned medical school curriculum. We have semester-long courses. We don't do systems-based. So we have a semester-long course in anatomy and physico, physio and physical exam and farm, things like that. Uh, our first academic year usually follows kind of a typical schedule. We start around Labor Day. We're done by mid-May. 
pretty much all didactic coursework. Uh, that's the foundation of it. One thing we did in 2018 was we relocated off of Seton Hall's main campus to a new facility. Uh, it's called the Interprofessional Health Science Campus. It's about maybe like 10 miles away from Seton Hall's campus. And as they were building this place, we went in with one of the local healthcare systems. They wanted to start a medical school. So all of Seton Hall's allied health programs moved over, the College of Nursing moved over, and were co-located in this building with a medical school. And as they were designing the place, we probably spent about two years talking to architects and curriculum planners and all these folks that know a lot about this stuff. And they really kind of said, imagine money and expense and time and can, you have no constraints. What would you make this place look like? And it's kind of embarrassing to say, but we pretty much got everything that we were looking for. So. It allows us to do a lot of things. On our old campus, we had no sim center. Uh, students would wind up doing all their practical exams on each other. The building we moved into, kind of the highlights of it, one is we have a gross anatomy lab that the students do cadaver dissection. When we've been on the old campus, we used to go to New Jersey Medical School, and we would kind of rent a room and rent a couple of cadavers, and the instructors would do uh, prosections, and the students would just kind of come in and observe. And when we were, we were relocating over to this place, the instructor said, hey, you know, we have the space. I want the students to do all their own dissections. And I said, you know, my, my reservation, if you want to learn anatomy, that's probably the best way to learn anatomy. But my reservation was, well, all this time you're spending dissecting, you're not studying physio, you're not studying physical diagnosis, you're not studying preventive medicine, what's, what's the dent going to be? And the way they structured the class was we have lab, it's Monday mornings, and usually Seton Hall's academic year will start on a Monday. So generally PA students' first class is gross anatomy lab, and it's not an introduction or an orientation lab. You walk in, the instructor hands you a scalpel, talks for 10 minutes and says, okay, we got to get busy, make this big Y-shaped incision on somebody. Uh, they jump right in. And then we have lecture in common with the physical therapy students on Tuesday. And on Wednesdays, the PT students will go and they'll finish whatever we started and then start on the next area. And by leapfrogging like that, really, the students, uh, that it's card access. They can go in any time they want if there's not a class in there, but really they can get done most of what they need to get done in the anatomy lab. So that was a big positive change to our curriculum. And then the other is the simulation spaces we have available to us. We try and jump right into the first year and get students using it. Even before they know a lot about medicine, we have an area that's set up kind of like a, it'd be basically just be set up like a clinic with 16 exam rooms. And I don't know how we got a hook in them, but we have a troop of like 60 standardized patients and we're we're like within sight of the new heart new york skyline a lot of these folks are off-broadway actors and actresses so they're really good at this so if we want them to pretend they have a gallbladder or appendicitis you know they know to say ow when the student pokes them in the right place but even if even before the student has that medical knowledge we can start talking about communication skills so if i want a student to have to go in a room and say hey this person has pancreatic cancer they have maybe three months to live this person will be a sobbing wreck on the floor, crying real tears. And, you know, it's it's disorienting. And I think the best thing about it is it has really good audiovisual recording capabilities. So it used to be, you know, we'd give a student a practical exam. I would stand in the corner with a clipboard and say, you did it, you didn't do it, or you tried to do it, and it, you didn't do it right. And we'd fight about that. Now we can give the student a clipboard and say, well, here's your 20-minute video, what you just did. You watch and tell me what you think you did well and what you didn't do well and why. And I think the benefit of that is it really forms a reflective practitioner that can, you know, be self-reflective. And, you know, it's, I tell the students it's important to judge what you can do well and what you don't do well. It's, everyone's going to have weaknesses. As long as you know what they are, you can find a way to work around it. I, I joke with them, you know, if someone needed a spinal tap, I promise you I could 
get CSF out of them. It would be their worst day in a long time. I would probably get chips of bone and chunks of muscle and stuff. But if you need CSF, I can get it. But I know I'm bad at that. If I can marshal resources to work around that, that's what I need to do. So, so it's good. Right from the first year of the program, we get in sim as much as we can. Tell us more about the sim center. Uh, we have a hi-fi sim that's got the the mannequins, the gazillion dollar mannequins that blink, they sweat, they cry. They do it all. I, they, I'm told they can barf on a student. I'm very enthusiastic to make that happen, but the sim center director will not allow me to. So, But someday I'll sneak it in. Uh, we don't do too much of that in the first year. We're just kind of not, the student's knowledge base is not there yet. So the first academic year is kind of all the, the typical didactic stuff with as much sim and hands-on stuff thrown in. We spend a lot of time in the physical diagnosis lab, probably on the order of about nine hours a week. And I think the students get to the point like, why are we drilling this again and again and again? And we just tell them, it's like a CPR class. You know, CPR has 20 steps and you go through a six hour class and you just do it and do it and do it until you don't even have to think about it anymore. A physical exam's like that, except it's got 2000 steps and we need to know you can do it in the middle of the night when you're tired. I'm not interested what happens in the middle of a day when it's rainbows and sunshine and everything's great. We want to know what you're going to do when the situation is bad. So that's first academic year. Students have the summer uh, pretty much off. So from May until September, there's a couple of online classes. We had some courses in the spring semester and the students told us we were horrible people and the curriculum was unbearable. And how could you be so fiendish as to make us carry as many credits? And PA students will be surprised to hear PA faculty actually listen to them and read all the reviews they do and the graduation surveys. We do all mill through that stuff and make changes to our programs based on student and alumni feedback and preceptor feedback. So we took a couple of courses and put them as online coursework between the first and second year with the intention that students will go home, they'll go on vacation, they'll relax, they'll get a job and do their thing. Most of it's asynchronous coursework they can do. We do have a diagnostic imaging course where there are some live lectures. So. I think next week I'm on tap to give a couple of chest x-ray lectures from like 8 to 10 p.m. at night, which is becoming past my bedtime these days. So that's pretty much it for summer. In the fall, the students will come back and do some more didactic coursework. Uh, the big thing that starts the curriculum then is we have a class called Fundamentals of Clinical Medicine, and it tries to kind of tie together everything that's come to that point. So we bring in as many people working in a field as we can, specialists, board-certified docs, PAs working within a field, rheumatology, endocrinology, cardiology week, pulmonary week. It's intense, but it's what's what's the epidemiology? What's the etiology? How does it present? What did they tell you in the history? What do you find on the exam? What tests do you order? What results do you expect? How do you treat it? What's the prognosis? Kind of everything. That's their big didactic capstone course. And while they're taking that, they're doing a couple other things on the side. We have a research curriculum. So they start taking things like research methodology and biostats. And then we have our white coat ceremony that December. So we kind of have three big semesters of didactic coursework. And when they come back for that spring semester, that's when clinical rotations will begin. So that becomes kind of their 40 hour week responsibility at that point. We have online courses. They take things like health policy, biostatistics, more research stuff, epidemiology, medical ethics. They'll kind of go through that as their uh, as the rest of their curriculum runs. They'll carry that all the way through. Most students will do rotations through the summer between second and third year. So we do schedule off blocks into the curriculum. Students have three off blocks. If they chose not to, they could potentially never take an off block and fill all that time with electives. I generally don't recommend that to students. I say this is the probably the last time in your life when you can have a month to do nothing with no big consequences from an employer or anything. So a lot of students will try and get the got an off block coming into graduation so they can do job interviews interviews and pants prep but so are they on core rotations that entire three semesters of 
clinical? Yeah, so we do we do all the core stuff that's required by ArcPA. The one thing we have as a core that's not strictly speaking required by ArcPA is we have students do eight weeks of uh, four, two four week blocks of outpatient medicine. And our thinking in doing that is, you know, these are the offices they're going to see twenty or thirty people potentially in a day. It's all the bread and butter primary care stuff that's going to be on the pants, and that you need to know as someone who's graduating from a program with a mission that speaks to primary care. So they'll see an extra couple of hundred of patients with back aches and headaches and pink eye, UTIs, URIs, all that kind of stuff. And then in terms of electives, every student has to do two electives. Pretty much everything you can name, unless it's really esoteric, we have on the menu. And then we're always willing. I think all PA programs are always willing. If somebody has something that's not on the menu, you know, we'll try and make it happen. It's just a matter of it seems like the clinical affiliation agreement process is becoming more and more complex and the contracts get longer and longer as the years go on. So we actually start asking students right in the first semester of the program, if you're not from around here or you intend not to settle here after you graduate, if you have a contact and you want to rotate somewhere out of state, it's probably a good idea to show your face in the healthcare system and see what you like, what you don't like, what's the area like. And if you if there's something you want to do in the area that's not on our menu, let us know and we'll start trying to work through that. In terms of our curriculum, I know it's successful. We have our pants pass rates always fine. Sometimes students say, well, why aren't you doing the organ system-based curriculum? And it's kind of our impression that if you look at the literature that's come out, even in the lay press over the last couple of years, students ask what they should do in the summer before PA school. Should I study anatomy? Should I study physio? I say, well, you should relax, number one. But you might want to read some of the books that have come out about kind of neuroscience and grit and memory and learning. There's a lot of good stuff in the lay press that's come out, like Make It Stick is a book I recommend to people. And they talk about like interleaving learning and spaced repetition. And it's just kind of our feeling as a faculty, you know, if you do an organ system based thing where you have a cardiology month and everything's stuck in there. That's not necessarily the same kind of spaced repetition and interleaving of learning. We'd rather a student talk about the heart a little bit in physiology and then kind of forget about it over the course of a couple of weeks. And then, bam, it's there again in physio. And they kind of forget a little bit about it. And it hits them again in their physical exam and it hits them again in preventive medicine. We just feel like that kind of repetitive knocking at a subject leads to pretty good outcomes. So that's why our curriculum is kind of structured the way it is. Other thing that's a little unusual about our program we want to make sure applicants understand is we have a dual degree program with our biology department. And what that means is if there's very high performing students coming out of secondary school, they can declare if they meet certain benchmarks, they can declare that they want to be a PA and they will guarantee them a seat as a freshman. And if they continue to meet certain benchmarks as they come through the undergraduate curriculum, they basically start with us their senior year. So the advantage to the program is they kind of skip a year of college. We'll give them their undergraduate degree at the end of the first year of what's the PA curriculum. They stick around for two more years and get their master's degree. And in a given year, it can occupy as many as like half of our seats. So we see a class of about 60. We generally kind of plan on about 30 of those folks coming up in-house. So it can make our program seem kind of artificially small to outside applicants. But so just for truth in advertising and seat availability, it's varied widely. Some years we only have maybe 15 people come up in-house. It's not a it's not a hard fixed number, the 30. I just like to try and keep it there so that we really have a lot of diversity in folks, you know, second career folks and folks who I always tell applicants, people call and they're like, I'm I'm older. Is that okay? Am I going to be discriminated against? 
And I'm like, no, that's the foundation of our profession. I love having people in a class who had to make a car payment and a mortgage payment and maybe raise a kid because they have a very different perspective on life than a 22, 23 year old. Uh, so they can kind of temper a class a little bit and make things a little interesting. So we'd really try and get as many different folks in the mix as we can. What's the oldest that you had graduate? There was a guy in my class. He was a really interesting character. He just passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But he was, I want to say he was 60, 62. Yeah. And he had been, he'd been a Navy corpsman. He had been, he got an MBA. He'd owned a restaurant, an Italian restaurant, and made some of the best pizza in New Jersey. <laughs> As a hobby, he was a wedding photographer. He became somehow like, with his MBA, he became like a chief operating officer of a hospital. When he went to apply to PA school, he actually went to Seton Hall as an affiliated high school. And he, they were going through the paperwork, and it became apparent this guy had never gotten his high school degree. Wow. And so he had to go back and get some kind of blessing from somebody to get his high school degree so everything else would count and he could get into PA school. But he was a, he was a really interesting guy. So, you know, when you show up to PA school, you never know who's going to be in your class. One of our highest yeah. performing students ever had previously been like a cable TV repairman. Sure, sure. I have a 60 plus year old who graduated probably seven years ago, who was a Hollywood filmmaker. Wow. Like she, she, she was a cinematographer who, so this was her second career and she's still doing primary care in rural California. So uh, yeah, I, I agree. They bring, they bring a richness to the classroom experience. Like you said, absolutely. Well, I had students in my class, I had two classmates, one uh, had a history in HVAC and the other one was a cosmetologist. So, you know, I mean, people come from all walks of life. There was another guy in my class. He had been a defense contractor. He was an engineer, really smart guy. Students sometimes are like, what's the workload going to be like in PA school? And the thing I tell students is don't plan on working while you're in PA school. If you're going to have financial concerns, we need to address them before you start. This guy worked 40 hours a week and nonstop through PA school. They let him work flex time. He would go into the office after, you know, like five, six at night, work till 11. He would work weekends like holy cow how could anybody do that i was a pizza delivery man for a while <laughs> even that got to be too much so yeah uh, you, you can make almost anything work in pa school it just depends where you're coming from and your time management and how much time you want to spend stuff. right yeah well chris we usually like to just offer folks the opportunity if you have any parting thoughts or advice for pre-pa students we are happy to be to listen to your thoughts on that before we close yeah, I have a lot of folks always say what makes for success in PA school. I think flexibility is very important. I think the other thing that's, you know, students who make it look easy are students who have the ability to look at a large volume of material and figure out fairly quickly what's important and what's not. And those are the folks that they drive their classmates crazy. Their classmates study for 10 hours and someone else studies for three hours and gets better outcomes. And the thing I try and tell students very early on is that's a learnable skill. So we spend a lot of time talking to our students about, you know, the, there's works in the popular press about the difference between kind of a fixed mindset that you come in and my IQ is fixed. I can't improve my memory. I'm stuck where I am. And there's a lot of good neuroscience literature saying you can improve your IQ. You can exercise your memory and make it work better. How you're performing today. If you exercise your muscles, they will work better. If you exercise your mind and use evidence-based study skills, you can really make things go better. And I think it's disorienting for a lot of students. They arrive at PA school. They've all been high-performing students or they wouldn't get into PA school. And some of them take their first round of exams and get clobbered on something. And it's just a unique experience. It's very disorienting to them. 
So we try and talk about study skills. We don't talk too much during orientation because I think they're still very much at the mindset of like, why do I need somebody to talk to me about study skills? I got here, I'm fine. We let them go through the first round of exams and we've usually piqued their interest at that point. And that's when we start talking about kind of a, you know, what kind of mindset you need and it's grit that's going to get you through the program probably more than anything else. So, um, you know, people ask, what are PA schools looking for? I think early on, we're just looking at numbers and we're trying to convince ourselves that, you know, based on whatever secret formula each PA program has, we look at your numbers and you look like students are successful in the program. And, you know, it's, it's students might not realize this. All faculty are always pulling for your success. Everybody wants you to do well. When a student come in, comes in and has a bad outcome, that's devastating because we know our students very, very well. We have personal relationships with them. PA cohorts are small. You know, if you fail your organic chemistry class, you might have 125 people in your class. Your professor doesn't know you from Adam. PA school, everybody in your class knows you. They know your family. Your instructors knows what's going yeah. on with you and your family. If you have a bad outcome, that's that's tragic. It's hard on, harder on the student, obviously, but the faculty never, that, that's, that's something that takes a while to recover from. So, you know, everybody's really pulling from you. You have to believe that. And the other thing I think students maybe don't realize, if you're having a hard time, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. As a faculty member, there's nothing more rewarding to me than taking a student who's having a hard time and turning that situation around. And when I talk to newer faculty, sometimes they're a little bit hesitant, like a student will have a reputation as being kind of difficult to deal with or having a hard time. That's what we're here for. And when I talk to clinicians, the, the horny line I say is, you know, you, when you were envisioning becoming a healthcare practitioner, did you picture yourself curing cancer and saving people from massive trauma? Or did you picture yourself doing insurance physicals on healthy people all day? And they said, no, I was going to run out and do these miraculous things. And it's like, we'll do that for students. Think of these people as being kind of academically sick. And if you can turn one of these situations around. So that's we brilliant, really, Chris. I love that. Yeah. Like we try and get a mindset that's, you know, students don't be embarrassed. You're going to have a hard time with something. Even if you've never had a hard time in your life, we are here for you. You know, you got to pull the oars ultimately, but we're 100% behind you. We want to do everything we can to make this work. We've seen students in similar situations turn it around. So that's that's the heart I think all PA faculty have, everybody I've ever spoke to. And they, you know, sometimes it's, it's an odd situation. They don't know what to do or how to make it work. And, you know, the thing I say to faculty is, well, some students have an academic flu and some students have academic pancreatic cancer. You're not going to save everything. But you know, if you're organized and the student's willing to kind of think about their study strategy and, and change what they're doing, most folks most folks can get through PA school. The admissions process at most schools is pretty good. If you get into school, you should probably be able to get through school. I think PA education is is a humbling experience for even the best students. There's always going to yeah. be a, a, an area that we struggle with. Some people are better than others. You know, some people are struggling phys, but they're good in anatomy and vice versa. So I think that's the point, right? If you can show humility, which I think is a good skill for a yeah, practitioner. True. I tell um, students, if, if you're not on. humble, medicine will humble you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Chris, thank you so much. This is really sure. insightful. Of course, I'm totally biased. But what I love about the podcast is we get people on like you that have a model of education that's different. 33 months, there's only a few programs out there that yep. are 30 and above. And it just gives applicants another opportunity to think about what do I need to be successful? And, you know, what's uh, what's unique about this program that can benefit me personally? And I, I think you do a great job of outlining yeah, that. So I tell students you. that during the interview process, you know, if this is not the program for you, that's fine. Find a program that's good for your personality. Do you want to be in a tiny program where everybody knows everything that's going on? Do you want to be in a bigger program where your people will kind of leave you alone? But Wherever you go, you're going to work really hard. Just find a place that you can work hard and be happy. You know, Absolutely. Yourself with the people. Yeah. So that's a good insight. 
Well, we want to thank our guest, Dr. Christopher Hannifin, for sharing his time, his path about becoming a PA, and his information about Seton Hall University's PA program. It was interesting to learn about another 33-month-long program that is out there for students to consider. Tune in next week as we speak with Dr. Nina Multak, the Associate Dean and Randolph B. Mahoney Director of the University of Florida School of Physician Assistant Studies. Dr. Multak talks to us about her path to becoming a BA, her path to becoming an educator, and about the University of Florida's program and all the offerings that they have. We also talk with Dr. Multak about her experience leading simulation as a PA nationally. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and perspectives expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions or policies of the University of Arizona.